Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast. My name is Graham Brown and with me is Michael Waits. We talk about everything involved in the Asian tech ecosystem. Michael, how are you doing? I'm doing super. It's been a big week. I've been looking forward to talking to you um, since the last time we spoke. Let, let's just jump right into it. Yeah, excellent. I know you've got a big subject on your mind at the moment. There's something you want to share, something that's very topical and hot right now. What's that? So two things really. One is real estate. I want to talk about real estate how that business is developing online in Thailand and in the rest of the region. I want to talk about how some Japanese investors have invested in it in a way that doesn't make any sense to me, frankly. And then in the end, I want to talk about that's a big surprise. Right. I really want to continue to do this because there's so much stuff that happens on the upside and on the downside that isn't really surprising. But when it happens, people act like it's a surprise. Right. And I think we should point those things out. I'm calling that, that's a big surprise, and let's, let's do that at the, at the end of this conversation about real estate. All right, can't wait for the surprise. Let's start with real estate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I was introduced to two co-founders this week, and interestingly enough, they're, they're, they're Thai, but they're not based in Bangkok. Mm. Okay, they're based in Chiang Mai. Right. So Chiang Mai is like more well-known for you know vacations, it's got some mountains up there, so it's a little bit cooler. You can go up there and ride elephants and see waterfalls. It's known for kind of this relaxed vibe. Now, there's a pretty good co-working spaces up there, and there's a pretty good tech ecosystem. But everybody kind of gets the sense that, you know, if you're a Japanese couple and you're in your 60s and you want to retire someplace where you can get, like, sashanishiki rice, mm -hmm. right. you can go to, go to Chiang Mai. Chiang Mai is the place. It is the place you can get Okada and a whole bunch of like Japanese stuff up there. So there are yeah. a lot of Japanese people there as well. There's a great connection between that part of Thailand and, and Japan. Anyway, I was talking to these two founders and they're not kids, right? And I, in the way, there's a part of me that's biased towards like not kid founders, but they're in their 40s. And this woman's been running an offline real estate business in Chiang Mai for over 20 years and has accumulated, I will say, a ton of data offline. Hmm. Okay, literally like on pieces of paper and maybe in spreadsheets. And he happened upon a guy who has worked for Chevron, a Thai guy who has a PhD, I believe, in industrial engineering. Mm -hmm. So super intelligent guy, very well spoken in both languages. And I was introduced to them last week. And I prefaced my conversation with them because they said they wanted to introduce me to their new real estate portal, which they'd been working on, you know, for a year. And I sat down with them. I was introduced by a friend and I said, look, I'm a little bit biased against real estate portals per se. And here's why. Because as engineers will tell you, you're trying to eliminate noise and look for signals. And most real estate portals are just filled with noise. Mm. And they're just lead gen engines. And lead gen engines, I think, tend to annoy people. Right. What do I mean? What do I mean by that? I mean, I've got a buddy who's looking for a new apartment. He called up one of these real estate portals in Thailand. He, you know, logged in, gave them his email address, gave them his phone number, and said what he was looking for. And within five minutes or so, he got a phone call from someone and said, "You know, thank you for giving us your information. Really appreciate it. Unfortunately, the, you know, the apartment at which you were looking is no longer available. But now that I know what you want, I think I can show you a few other things." So it's just like online phishing. I hate right. this. It's a bait and like switch, know, right? It's complete bait and switch. And I know the way, um, you know, lead gen works. I get it. You know, it is, a, it is a business. I don't think it's a super valid business for this type of thing. But, hey, that's what people do. Mm. 
Hmm. But I don't think those real estate portals per se become billion-dollar businesses because there's just too much fluff there. And I kind of prefaced my conversation with these two founders like that, and they were smirking at me. Hmm. Like they knew something I didn't know. What was that? Well, first of all, again, this woman has been in the real estate business for 20 years, and her partner has been using big data in his role at Chevron to analyze like the entire retail market, not just in Thailand, but in all of Southeast Asia, to determine the optimal locations for retail outlets for Chevron, which amount to gas stations and sort of the convenience stores are associated with them. And this guy's been doing this for years. So he's been running algorithms and at the end of his career has been using some artificial intelligence. Um, he's a big data scientist and um, he was using machine learning to try to optimize not just where the location of these, but also the logistics that brought the gasoline and the natural gas and all of the supplies from you know ports and stuff like that to each one of their retail places in the whole region. So this guy is no neophyte when it comes to analyzing data. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, why he was smirking at me. Because <laughs> I think his feeling was, you have no idea what you're talking about and you have no idea what our business is about. So I said, okay, you know, educate me. And we went through this whole process of looking at his business. And, and to be fair, I was slightly dumbfounded because what they're doing, they're approaching this business from the other side of the fence, right? So most real estate portals will say, they'll just go out, they'll scrape every other kind of online site that has any type of real estate information in it, right? And they'll just post it without checking, no curation, no nothing. And what these two have decided to do from the beginning, and again, a lot of it's based on the data that this woman has accumulated over the past 25 years, is they decided they were going to start just in the purchase market and the resale market, and they're going to create a, a, um, a relationship with the builders and the developers, hmm. which meant that every single one of the things that they put on their, on their website was real. Okay, and they gave me an analysis of this, right? You know, we always talk, when we talk about these things, we always talk about numbers, okay? The real estate market, the, the initial sale real estate market in Thailand is worth, Thailand alone is worth about $18 billion. Mm-hmm. Okay, that alone, that in and of itself is a massive market. Um, and it's growing, it's growing bit by bit every year, and I have some data on that as well. Um, the advertising market that's associated with that is about $650 million a year, and it accounts for about 50% of outdoor advertising in Thailand. So if you drive around and you look at billboards and you look at just placards, half of them are going to be um, they're going to be for real estate, for new condos, new housing developments. Okay, and this has nothing to do with commercial real estate either. You're just talking about first-time sales for, for homes and condos. And townhouses, really, right? And then the final piece that they talked to me about was about 75% of these purchases have mortgages associated with them. So they're looking at at least three verticals in which they're going to enter in the real estate market. One is just the the sale market. Second is advertising and events, right? Advertising and events that are associated with the launch of new properties, which they're already doing via their offline business. And... Only 3% of online ads are real estate, which, has, which looks nothing like what the offline market looks like. So there's so much room for growth for online on their site. So they're approaching this in three different ways. And remember, they've already eliminated the noise because all of the product on their site 
is real. Hmm. You see how it's, this is completely different. And they're taking the 20 years of data that they had and also going to the developers and saying, essentially, we have an expertise in a niche of this market that you don't have in the sense that we have the ability to analyze all this data. So you have you have a bunch of data inside of your computers and maybe um, on pieces of paper. We can organize all of that for you and then use our own proprietary algorithms, proprietary artificial intelligence and machine learning to optimize everything about your current projects and new projects. Hmm. It's a completely different take on the market, right? Right. And the key here is, as you mentioned, that 50% of Thai's outdoor advertising space is real estate, right? But only 3% is online. So that sounds like there's a huge opportunity because, you know, if you look at any other market in the sort of the quote-unquote developed world, you know, real estate are big advertisers online because they know it generates leads for them, right? So yeah. There's no reason why it couldn't happen in Thailand as well with the right algorithms to help these guys out and match them up to the leads that they're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. And the other great thing is that, and we looked at this from some of the businesses that, um, that, that we were running in Thailand, and we'll talk about that later when we talk about um, it's a big surprise. Um, but total digital spending on, online in Thailand has reached an inflection point, right? Let me just see exactly what it is. It's about almost 10 billion baht, which is now about $282 million. But the real reason why that's important is because it's about five times bigger than it was just four years ago. So the market's moved the same way it's moved in the rest of the world as online advertising, real ads, yeah, not banner ads, but like real valid advertising moves from offline to online. And when that happens, if 50% of the ads mirror the offline ads, there's a big opportunity there. But the other thing that they're doing that's really interesting is they're also creating partnerships with banks, right? So they're going to try to help the banks automate their loan processes and their mortgage processes as well. And you see what this company's doing is instead of just going out and scraping data like DD Property does, right? Mm. Like the entire iProperty infrastructure does. Um, just like Think of Living does, and I know the guy who runs Find Your Space, he'll hate me for saying this, and I know the guy who runs HipFlat as well. These are all just lead gens, and they're thinking too small. Mm. What these people are doing is they're trying to revolutionize, at least in Thailand, basically in the same way that Zillow and Trulia and Redfin have done in the United States. Um, but again, with local flavor, right? To revolutionize the mortgage market, fix the advertising market on, from offline to online for real estate and work with the developers to make sure that all of the sort of properties that are available on their site are real mm -hmm. as opposed to covered in noise like the rest of the properties you see um, or a lot of the properties you see on some of these rental only sites and even the properties sell, selling sites as well. So imagine the money, I, mean, I don't have the data to hand, but I imagine the money in this game really is in the financial services side, isn't it? I mean, that's where the, you know, the, the, the commissions are going to come from or the advertising money is going to come from because they are one of the biggest spenders on digital advertising. I would imagine it's the same in Thailand right. or it's a growing market, right? That's where the real money is in this, right? Absolutely. I mean, if you look at if you look at a car company in the United States, whether it's Ford or General Motors or Chrysler or even actually Toyota now, they're not actually a car company. They're just yeah. a massive finance company. Right. Right. Exactly. 
They're just higher purchase guys, right? Yeah, I mean, they're just they they sell cars so that they can make interest off of um, people making payments. They're making a vig on you know they borrow money short term and they and they um they lend money long term. It feels just like a bank, right? So they're disintermediating banks and they're running big finance arms, and that's where they make most of their money. So their margins on cars are thin, but their margin on finance is high. And I think the same thing is going to happen in the real estate market here. But just so you know, so this is the other question I asked. Overnight, not overnight, sorry. I believe 10-year 10 10 year bond yields in Thailand, so government bond yields are 25 to 3%. Okay, but mortgages are 65 to 7%. So there's just a spread everywhere in, in the interest rate market, and that's what these guys are going to do also. They're going to make money so many different ways. And here's the other amazing thing. Well, two other amazing things. One is they test everything in the kind of privacy and quietude of Chiang Mai. So they can fly under the radar for a year and no one's ever heard of them. And they've done all this bootstrapping on their own. And to be fair, it's not so much of a bootstrap. They've raised no money so far, but they've probably spent about a million dollars of their own money building out a big data platform and building partnerships. And when they burst onto the market, I think the rest of the market's going to be shocked. But to me, this is great, right? The other thing that they're doing is they're using um, technology, 3D video, virtual reality, and drones to fly through properties and put those videos online so people can actually see them. And they're creating a living score and living index so that when people look at it, they're not just look, when people look at properties on their site, they're not just looking at, you know, how many square meters it is, what the location is and stuff like that. They're actually doing an analysis on all of the POIs, right? points of interest for people that don't know what that means, that are in their neighborhood or around their area, how far it takes to drive to school, how far is the closest supermarket, you know, do you like to go out at night? So where are the night spots and restaurants? They're scoring everything as well in a way that no one's done before. And again, they're using some back, back data that they've had forever to do this. They're creating a pretty incredible um, back end, which they've shown to me in a way that no other real estate business in, um, in Thailand or in the rest of the region has done. Okay, so let's um, play devil's advocate here. It's what the an investor or the, the business school guys would call a double-sided model, right? Where you've got, you know, you're building effectively what is a market for buyers and sellers. You know, on the one hand, you've got people buying the properties. On the other hand, you've got people selling the properties. And then you've got all the financial services thrown in and so on. But those, uh, those business models are notoriously hard to build and require, you know, a lot of resources to scale. I mean, how do you see the sort of the outlook for something like that in the Thai market? So it's a very good question. And this is part of the conversation that we had last week. You can build a real estate portal that just lists properties, right? But that's all you have. And your ability to create – and you're not taking your own information. You're not curating any of your own information, right? So you have no edge. I could, I could literally start one of those businesses when I'm on the phone with you. And I might say that to you for the next three years whenever I talk about a business that I don't particularly love because there's no barrier to entry. Hmm. They're not creating and they're not um, analyzing any particular data that's any different than anybody else's. So how does this scale? It scales because you build a back end that focuses on data and that – and that has a relationship with the source of the supply. So they're building a platform. 
it's very different than a marketplace. A marketplace is, is someplace, as you know, where there's just an accumulation of things. It makes discovery of product, whether it's on something like Lazada, which has over 2 million products and it's almost impossible to find something. Um, or a product like Carousel, which is sort of a, it's a mobile business that allows you to take pictures of secondhand goods. It's the second largest or third largest seller of secondhand goods in Southeast Asia. But again, product discovery is really hard, right? And confirming whether the seller is actually real or the buyer can actually pay for it and matching those two things together is really hard. But what they're doing is they're creating a platform. And that platform has multiple services on it and multiple businesses and multiple um, points of revenue. So in my mind, as a, as a potential investor, um, it's wildly differentiated than every other platform, every other marketplace that's out there. And these other businesses are just marketplaces. Anybody can list there. It's not really curated. And anybody can participate. But in their marketplace, in their platforms, excuse me, they curate. And their ability to scale, it may take them more time, right? So they're starting in Chiang Mai. They're going to expand to Bangkok. And then they're going to expand to like five or six other large markets in Thailand. And once they nail that, they're going to expand to the rest of the country mm. and then to the rest of the region. And you're right. Scaling is difficult, but they've got at least a year or so lead on the accumulation of big data in this market, and catching up to them is going to be hard, and most people don't like to do the hard work. Right. So while they're, slog while they're slogging it out on the scale side, everybody else is trying to go the easy way. In other words, they're not building this business like some of the other participants here that are building it just to get acquired by somebody else bigger. They're building it to be the biggest business. Mm -hmm. Okay, and because they're using data, they're creating much better use of information and deep insights into what's happening in the market. Okay, so they'll actually help developers create their own signals. And I, I do agree with you, you're right. These businesses are hard to build, but that's the barrier to entry. Right. I don't mind it. I don't mind it when it's hard to build. And remember, the guy who's doing it from the data side spent years helping a multinational company build their business by doing the same type of thing um, offline, and he has no competition on the data side in the real estate business. It's, and it's <clears throat> sorry, it's very similar to other online businesses that are that are data related, right? The real estate developers themselves, like CBRE, you know, pick one, any of the big ones, right? Jones, Lang, LaSalle, I think I got that right. Jay, Jayla, I can't remember. Yeah. And these businesses are awesome at building, developing, organizing all that stuff. But they're pretty poor on the tech side, and they know that, so they're willing to pay for that service, hmm. right? And they're also willing to pay for the marketing service because a lot of these things now are too expensive to build internally, and they're going externally to build them. You, you'll rarely hear me talk like this when we talk like this so positively about any individual company. And full disclosure, I have no investment. I have no acts in this. I have no cares about it. But this is just a way to explain how – Something under the radar can get built that has the potential to be so good and so differentiated, right? And is not based on any particular model. They're not copycatting anything in particular, right? So they're not trying to do exactly what Zillow did or what Trulia did or what Redfin did. I don't know if you know what the Redfin business is in the United States, but it's basically saying we don't want to get rid of all the real estate agents. We just want to give them tools to use. And Redfin has also built something where they say – if you list on our site, we'll guarantee you to buy your to buy your house at a price. Hmm. And they so they're taking inventory risk. 
Right, yeah. And what these guys here are thinking about doing as well is maybe um, analyzing that business, that business risk, and potentially doing that as well. And the reason why Redfin can do this, it will be the same reason why these guys can do it here, and that is they'll have all the data. And nobody else will have it in, in the same way or be able to analyze it. Right? They don't have to hire. They have something like 60 people in their business already, 25 of which are, um, are programmers. Um, and our and our coders. So this this is a real big this is a big business already. I forget how much revenue it has in it off the top of my head, but a decent amount of revenue as well. Hmm. So I li- I like this a lot. You'll 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 normally hear me rip a business apart here, because I think people get too bullish on things. But in this case, I think people might be too bearish on it. So I like it a lot, and I like the model. Hmm. And you're long on it. What about I mean, in terms of uh, precedents here? Agoda is obviously one of the big success stories from Thailand, which went international. They came from Thailand, originally got bought out by, who was it? Priceline, wasn't it? I think Priceline. Was it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they weren't long into their business before they got bought out. That's nope. a sort of an interesting model, interesting scenario. Do you see something like that applying here? Do you think that's sort of a relevant you know, comparison? I think the I think the travel business, and I, I, I feel silly saying this, right, but I feel like the travel business is inherently – not a local business, right. right? Most people want to travel to a place that's relatively far away or ridiculously far away from where they are because they're essentially trying to get away from their own life, right? So people from France will travel to Thailand and people from Thailand will travel to Berlin just to get away. Um, but real estate markets are essentially local. They're just fundamentally local businesses. If, if anything, they're regional. Sure, at the high end of the market, you do have you know, and, and particularly in the commercial side, but even in the residential side, you do have, you know, Russian oligarchs and, and wealthy people from all of Europe buying property in London. That does happen. But that doesn't consume a large piece of the market. I don't think this company per se or companies like it will go global, but they'll definitely go regional because what's being what's happening here can be replicated in Vietnam on the same scale and in the Philippines. In the Philippines, there's a very famous company in the real estate market called ZipMatch. And we could spend an entire episode talking about ZipMatch as well. I'd love to interview them, to be fair. And they've been funded. They've been funded for two rounds, actually. And their only innovation is that they're filming the inside of the apartments, really. I mean, I don't see how that's any different. And I've, I've gone back and forth with people on this as well. In the end, I think a business like that doesn't add a lot of excess value and they don't really have much of a goal to expand outside of the Philippines. And the biggest market in the Philippines is Manila. It's very segmented, very targeted. But this is a business that got funded. And I believe that the business that we're talking about, um, just this real estate model, has a much larger chance of success. It's all data-based, hmm. right? All data and all trying to build insights. And again, it's partnering with the product developers as opposed to just scraping other sites that have information that hasn't been um, curated and, and, and no one's um, you know, been able to tell whether it's real or not. So I think this is very, very different. That's an interesting share there, Michael. I'm big on real estate myself. I'm always interested in how markets developed. Obviously, it's uh, you know, case by case, country by country, and markets change so fast. What's the situation in Thailand like? Because I know that the last few years in Southeast Asia generally have been a real mixed bag, haven't they? I mean, next door in Singapore and Malaysia, They've been hurting a little bit over the last few years as the market's cooled off. How about the scene in Thailand? So in Thailand, so in Singapore, right, there's a large um, portion of the real estate market that's actually public housing. It's, it's hybrid housing. 
So a lot of the and Hong Kong is similar in the sense that a lot of the properties and the locations get auctioned. So there's government intervention and government control. And here it's very laissez-faire. So the market here goes in cycles, right? Whenever you see um, what's considered externally to be political turmoil, so without naming what that turmoil is at any level, um, markets go down. But fundamentally, the market here is ridiculously strong. And you've seen this in your own real estate investments, right? Here's what happens in a very simplistic way. Um, the market oversupplies, right? Whenever prices go up, the market will oversupply. And let's say it takes three years to fill that supply, right? It oversupplies and then, then prices either stabilize or go down a little bit. But those new lows are higher lows. Mm. And once that supply is out of the market, then the existing properties start to get higher and higher prices. And then that process just repeats itself over and over again. And here we're in Thailand right now, particularly on the condo, the one and two bedroom condo market. We're seeing that the end of that process play out where there's a lot of supply coming online. But there are big buyers for it because, again, structurally, um, just like what happened in Japan in the 70s and 80s, we're seeing happen in Thailand. A lot of people are moving off of farms, right, mm. that have been in their family for generations. And they're coming into the city to get office jobs. Um and you know, move from blue collar work to white collar work, hmm. and they need a place to live. And they're expanding the BTS out here as well, and also the MRT. So again, they're building properties along those lines, and the real estate there and the land there is increasing in value. And even when there's a little bit of stress in the market and the market goes down, it never goes, not never, but it doesn't go down below the previous low, previous low prices, and the next level of highs um, are much higher. Right. And I know people. I know people. Just as an example, that bought one bedroom apartments. Let's call it fifty square meters a few years ago for three million baht, about a hundred thousand dollars. And in the same neighborhood, you see new construction going up for seventy-five percent higher. Hmm. Well, the key here is fundamentals, isn't it? I mean, you sort of touched on it already. I mean, if you were to compare Thailand and Japan, I mean, the situation here in Japan, there's a lot of excitement about real estate, especially in Tokyo. Everybody's going on about 2020 Olympics, blah, 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 all that kind of thing. But I always look at the fundamentals and say, hey, think about this in a second. Everybody's saying that in Japan, by, you know, in the next 30 years, so 33 years, by 2050, the population is going to drop from 125 million to under 100 million. And, right. right. So, right. you know, when I look at these figures, I think, well, hang on a second, 25 million less people, and that's going to be a lot of less young people, and a lot more old people, right? You know, that's going to really screw up the housing market because all these people getting excited about these new property developments in Tokyo are going to suddenly realize actually there's nobody to fill them down the line. I'm thinking 20 years ahead, right? But when you look at Thailand, you've still got population growth. I know it's slowed down a lot recently. But you have the fundamentals there. It's a strong economy growing. You've got fixed boundary and Bangkok's, you know, what, 13 million people or whatever. It's, mm -hmm, a, mm -hmm. it's a mega city in its own right. So on that basis, you know, it's, well, I mean, the fundamentals look good. So, you know, you're not losing 20 million people over the next 20 years, which I think is a fundamental <laughs> worry. No, no. And, and actually, some of those Japanese people are moving to Thailand. Right. So <laughs> the people that are left are moving to Thailand. So... A little bit of slack there. Um, yeah, so I agree. The fundamentals over to, over time look really good to me. I don't think there's going to be a big problem for the market. And you know, to the extent that 
the supply, like I said, it, it oversupplies and then undersupplies over time, but the prices are just going to go higher. The fundamentals are good and they're good across the entire country as well. So, um, you know, and as foreigners see the politics in this country start to stabilize, at least their perception of it stabilizing, things are just going to get better and better. So thumbs that's up. what I think. Thumbs up for real estate in Thailand. And you keep us updated on that project, if you, uh, however that develops for you. Absolutely. What else have we got on the cast today? You want to talk about something? Flip it over a little bit here. Let's yeah, I mean, I want, to get a little, I want to get a little sarcastic. I want to do a segment. Maybe we'll keep doing this called, oh, that's a big surprise. Right. Um, and hopefully you can hear the sarcasm in my mouth. I mean, in my, in my statement. Um, what does that really mean? Well, you know, there's all this hype in the startup sector all over the world, right? People putting a million dollars into this and $3 million into that and all this other shenaniganry. And... <clears throat> As an investor with a stake in a, a few different company, companies in this market, you know, I watch the news, obviously, particularly on the financing side, really carefully. And every, not every now and then, but I'd say once or twice a week, I see something, I read it, and I think to myself, actually, that's not a big surprise. And I read the news, which is written like it is a gigantic surprise. And I want to talk about a, one company in particular, and that's Happy Fresh. Right. And I would actually call it Unhappy yeah. Fresh. All right. This is a grocery <laughs> delivery service in Southeast Asia, right? So off the bat, that sounds like it's going to be a challenge. A problem. What's the story? So here's the story. And again, this kind of gets back to what we were talking about before. When you don't control your own supply, right? So if my job is to say to you, um, I'm going to build a, a logistics business around delivering somebody else's supply. So they already have a supermarket. I'm not building my own supermarket, which would be a completely different prospect and maybe a better business. But Happy Fresh is a business that says, I'll go to any supermarket, really. Tell me, tell me who you are and tell me where you live, and I'll go to the supermarket and pick up your stuff for you. Now, for me, I don't feel like anybody wants them to pick somebody to pick out their own tomatoes for them or their own cucumbers or their own pineapple, right? Anything that's perishable, I figure you want to shop for for yourself. Hmm. Okay? But this is a company that started a few years ago. It was funded at the seed level by some people that I know. And so I have like a very small stake in this through another one of my investments. So I feel comfortable talking about this, even though I have no inside information. And then in 2015, it did a 10 or $12 million round, again, to great fanfare. And then a follow on round a year later for another $10 million. This company's raised over 20 something million dollars. And, and, and about a week ago, it said it was Firing its current CEO, which was one of the founders. And I always get nervous when the CEO founder leaves um, amid oh, yeah. a, a dying business and, and hired a new CEO, obviously, who's coming in. He's actually on the existing staff, so they're just promoting him, really. And now they're cutting back in countries, which they announced that they were doing kind of when the last funding happened. The whole thing seems like a bit of a mess to me. And I really think this is not a big surprise. And I right. wonder sometimes, right, like – when you put your combined 20-something million dollars into this business, were you really thinking that this was going to be a billion-dollar business? And even if it was, who, like, who, how did you think it was going to get to be that size hmm. just by like delivering groceries? And remember, the, their biggest installation of this business is in Jakarta. I mean, Jakarta is a wonderful city, but – but yeah, how do but, they get out of Jakarta? That's what I want to know, right? Are there... Well, that's the point, right? So how do you how do you tell me you're going to guarantee me? Because this was one of the things that they were focusing on. How do you tell me you're going to guarantee me one hour delivery in a place where you where you can't even get to the airport in under three or four hours, regardless of whether you're on a motorcycle taxi or in a, or in a regular yeah. taxi? I mean, they're going into a market which, I mean, for the people who have managed to make this kind of thing work, 
we're talking about UPS, FedEx, Amazon, you know, the companies that have global reach, right, global presence and global infrastructure. They've got all that kind of learning and resources behind them. I mean, it's not an easy job making any kind of delivery service work, right, especially building it from the ground up. That's what really surprises me, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they don't, how can you make money out of delivering other people's groceries? What's I don't know. <laughs> but you invested in it. No, I, I did not, but somebody else did that I know. But isn't isn't right. that like, you know, building a global business around like shoveling somebody's snow when it right. in the wintertime? Like that's something a high school kid does. And it seems to me like this business should not be a big surprise that it failed. And we talked about this earlier, but have they ever heard of Webvan? <laughs> exactly. They even wrote a book about it, right? So They did. Like don't they know how to read? So right. how do they expect – and remember, Webvan was what? Seattle-based and it was probably funded by who? Like uh, Planner Perkins or something? Benchmark, Sequoia. Ben, all these guys. Goldman and Sachs. They, right? And they figured out back in the 90s, which might as well be back in the 1920s, right, when it comes to the internet, that this was not going to work. Right. And I remember reading when – first of all, Happy Fresh. Really? Really? I mean the name alone does not inspire confidence, right? I wanted to have like some amount of strength associated with it. I don't like the name, but that's just me. But I don't think it's a big surprise based on the timeline and based on what they're trying to do. Here's the thing. In a, in a country like Thailand, right, here are the three segments of the market. You just take the regular working person who has not yet reached the middle class on a GDP per capita basis, right? Hmm. That person is not going to order food for delivery online. They're not going to order groceries online. On their way home, they're going to pick that stuff up, first of all. Okay, and they're not going to do it on their mobile phone because their mobile phones are prepaid. And it, as they're running out of data and running out of voice, they have more important things to do than have the convenience of ordering groceries. And I think it's the same thing in Vietnam and the same thing in Indonesia that it is in Thailand. That's first of all. Second market segment is the middle class, right? People that have moved into the middle class that have office jobs. They're generally commuting by BTS or by MRT. And on their way home, they're passing a 7-Eleven, a family mart, um, any kind of convenience store or extended supermarket that has the that, that can sell them all the things that they want instantaneously. What, why would they go home and wait for one-hour delivery? Okay. And the third segment, and this is going to be slightly controversial to say, but the ser- third segment is the, is the um, upper classes and the very wealthy. And to be fair, a normal upper class or wealthy man or woman who's sitting at home and wants a tomato or a pineapple or some bananas is just going to ask their house staff to go get it for them. (laughs) And they don't need an app for that. So when someone comes – and this is what I want to know and it gets back to this whole like little sarcastic comment of that's a big surprise, right? And that is when someone walks into the office of the people that funded this business – and says, we're going to build a grocery delivery business. Like, who gets who gets excited about that? Mm. It sounds like it's a, a business school summer project that got out of hand, right? I mean, <laughs> right. I know it's I'm going to real- face flack if somebody hears me say that. But it sounds like, yeah, what would be a really good project that we could work on? Yeah, let's do a grocery delivery service. Okay. But I would understand. So here's the thing I would understand in the context of this, right? And that would be... I'm going to leave my corporate job and I'm going to change the face of farming. I'm going to build a gigantic organic business Mm. and then I'm going to build a logistic business around it because a lot of the stuff that gets delivered 
it gets expensive when the middlemen get involved and take a little bit of your profit out. And by the time it gets to a store, it's three times more expensive than it should be based on your production costs. Mm -hmm. So if once I control the means of production, then I can bring it in maybe with a logistics business that kind of mimics what Happy Fresh was trying to do by building my own physical stores potentially. Yeah. Or just distribution centers that are built specifically for perishable goods and then maybe some other things that get sold at supermarkets. Um, and then I, then I can go do that delivery stuff, but I control the product as well. Mm-hmm. You also have to remember, and maybe they forgot about this, but Tesco Lotus runs one of the biggest logistics businesses, not just in Thailand, but in all of Southeast Asia. And they do home delivery as well. Right, right. And that's, okay. what, that's the thing, right? Because, I mean, Tesco's got how many years of experience in this game, right? Yeah, and it's global. And they've been doing this. I know I know some of the senior buyers there. I know some of the senior logistics people there. And you sit and talk to them about, would you invest in this logistics business and would you help this thing? And they just look at you like you're insane and say, right. why would we invest externally in a business that's not going to provide any return to us unless it lists on an exchange and competes with our business? If we're going to spend that, I'm picking a number, $100 million dollars. We're going to do it for ourselves so we can outperform every other business that's trying to take away our profit. Yeah. And they've got plenty anyway. of money to dig into. This is, I mean, this plenty. is the thing. I think I'm amazed by this. I know we've talked a lot about infrastructure type startups in the past and how we sort of, you know, that's really the kind of investment areas that we're interested in, whether it's real estate or, you know, logistics or whatever. Any market, that's where it grows. That's, the, that's where the exciting developments are. But, you know, you've got this situation with, this thing, right? You know, you've got Happy Fresh. You know, I just think of Amazon Fresh, right? Amazon Fresh. How many years did it take Amazon to get to Amazon Fresh? What, fifteen years to get to that? Yeah. Stage? And they don't even yeah. have a proper delivery service yet. It's even just piecemeal, right? You know, even the biggest, I suppose, logistics player in the world, right? A company like Amazon, with all that information, they're even just at this stage, right? So. And all those customers, remember, they already have Amazon Prime and everything else to deliver to people naturally. In other words, I'll take a comb, I'll take a book, and I'll take a tomato. Can I have them all together? Remember, even in in, whether it's rural or or urban places, Amazon thinking, how can we do this? How can we do this? Let's do drones. I mean that's how far away from normal they're going. And you're trying to tell me that Happy Fresh – Sorry, I know I'm saying that really sarcastically, and you're right. Someone's going to kill me for saying this, but that Happy Fresh was going to win that. Right. I don't think so. So that's my that's a big surprise for this week. Yeah, big surprise. I mean, they started. You talk about Amazon having ready customers. Happy Fresh started with zero. Amazon's got like what 500 million credit card numbers stored online. <laughs> Something like right, that. I mean, how can you compete against that? You can't. I'm anyway, sure there's going to so be that, more of those. Oh, that was a good one. Oh. Yeah, I like it, but and I'm going to search for them. As a matter of fact, I don't think it's going to take too much time to search every week, but I think we should do this, and I'll be responsible for that. That's a big surprise. So my that's a big All surprise right. for this week is unhappy, fresh, goodbye. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I like it. Just on that note, actually, I thought I, I don't know if you noticed it. There was a story in one of the articles about groceries in Southeast Asia, one of the commentaries on groceries in Southeast Asia. I don't know if this was a positive or a negative. They said that Southeast Asia and the infrastructure of the grocery services was a Disney, Disneyland for entrepreneurs. What does that mean? Like the, the, the jokes there are like too many to make. Does that mean that they're all going to be Mickey Mouse operations? Right. I mean, is that an okay thing to say or is that like too sarcastic as well? I cannot I be know. sure. We'll live and learn. We'll find out in the future. We will. 
anyway. Hey, Michael, that was a good one. Hey, so rounding up today, we talked about real estate in Thailand as well as infrastructure, grocery delivery in Thailand and Southeast yes. Asia. Very interesting. We had a, a very positive and, well, a surprise as well at the end there. That's a big surprise. <laughs> okay. well, I, I like it. Exactly. You heard it here first. This is Asia Tech Podcast, Graham Brown and Michael Waits broadcasting from Tokyo and Bangkok, respectively. Michael, thanks so much for your insight today. What are we going to talk about next week? We're not decided yet. We're just going to keep it coming. More just going to keep it coming. All More feedback, surprise. please, to at Michael Waits on the Twitter. Yep. And anything that you want us to follow up on on the following week, um, please just use hashtag Asia Tech Podcast. Look forward to hearing from everybody. And thanks again, Graham. Exactly. Subscribe to us on iTunes. We're on iTunes today. So. Yay! We'll see you there. See you next thanks, week. Thanks, Graham.